Welcome to On Farm Trials with the PNW Farmers Network, where we explore the many trials that come along with cropping systems innovation in the Pacific Northwest. Plenty of questions get asked while farming across this region, and together we're digging into what it's like to try to answer some of them as producers, researchers, and the many other professionals in the field that get things done. In this two-part series, we head out to the Moon Family Farm in the Horse Heaven Hills of Washington to visit with owner and operator Garrett Moon and USDA ARS Cropping Systems Research Agronomist Dr. Garrett Hynek about their work collaborating on on on-farm trials to answer important cropping systems innovation questions together. Thanks for joining us for part one of this two-part interview. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Carol McFarland. We're with Garrett Moon of Moon Family Farms and Dr. Garrett Hynek as part of the LTAR Research Network out here on the Moon Family Farms in the Horse Heaven Hills here in Eastern Washington. We are looking forward to talking more about on-farm trials as research collaborations in answering questions important to innovation in the region's cropping systems. Welcome both to our podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having us out to the farm today. Um, all right, Mr. Moon, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your farm, who you farm with, and more about your farming conditions? Sure. Well, lots of questions there. I am a fourth generation family farmer, and I farm on the ground that's been in my family since about 1941. And we are 100% no-till in our operation. We are on some extremely dry and light soils, very windy conditions, and so we have to be very careful with how we treat the ground. That's what drove us to no-till, and we're always looking for ways we can do things that are environmentally responsive with some of the people who are downwind from us with growing metropolitan areas, and just to try to find ways that we have minimum erosion and we can make the most out of the little bit of water that we get. Excellent. And do you want to talk a little bit about who you farm with as part of your operation? Yeah, so on the family farm, it's my wife and I, husband and wife team. I do most of the outside farm work. She is my outstanding office manager and taking care of all that stuff. And then we have a few, at this point, a few part-time employees and some seasonal help. But it's mostly just her and I running things. Excellent. Um, And Dr. Hynek, would you talk a little bit about your... Uh, background and research interests. Of course. Um, I have been here in my current position. I'm a research agronomist with the USDA ARS now for two years. Uh, Before that, I was at the University of Minnesota, and then I was at Washington State University for a short while in a postdoc. My role here in the Northwest Sustainable Agroecosystems Research Unit is to study cropping systems throughout our LTAR, Long-Term Agroecological Research Site, which extends across most of eastern Washington, northeast Oregon, and northern Idaho. So it's a very large swath. And the Horse Seven Hills is one portion of that that I'm very interested in doing research on. A lot of what I do is on farm. So I'm working closely with farmers across this region. And I also focus on several facets as far as cropping systems. One of them is perennial grains, and another is either intercropping or in the fallow region, uh, looking at different um, recropping strategies to look at alternatives to fallow. 
uh, which, have, which is, uh, is one major interest that farmers seem to be uh, trying to tackle here um, as I have conversations throughout the, the dry land. Excellent. Well, one of our recent podcast episodes featured Jesse Brenner and his recropping adventures up near Elmira, Washington. Um, so maybe he'd be a good person to follow up with in your research program. Adventures abound, Carol. The, you know, the name of the game is on-farm trials, isn't it? <laughs> um, and there's a lot of fun to be had in this co- cropping systems innovation. Um, with that, I hear you two have been collaborating around some on-farm trials. Would you give an overview of what you've been working on? Uh, absolutely. I can I can do the first, uh, I guess, uh, kind of foray into this. Um, uh, Garrett Moon was the first, so we're both named Garrett, so that's going to be a confusing, confusing thing for this podcast, <laughs> but we'll work through it, we'll work through it. Yep. Um, uh, Garrett Moon was my first uh, on-farm research collaborator that I made uh, in eastern Washington, and I spend a lot of time in the Horse Seven Hills working with, with Garrett on, on doing on-farm research. Uh, maybe, Garrett, you could kind of tell him, yeah, Phil, you're, you're side of the story in. <laughs> Yeah, so we <clears throat> we met and I was lucky enough to meet him at the beginning of his time here and probably have been able to monopolize him a little bit from, because of that, which is great from my perspective. And I like what he's doing and the focus of his project because it's it's so much targeted towards the dry, dry land and this region that we're in, which has struggles that are unique, but I think also apply to other areas and concerns with climate change and many other things. So we are on the leading edge of it here when it comes to the dry country. And I think that's why we're glad to have them. And it's been fun too, to do work in the one of the driest rain-fed wheat production regions in the world, uh, simply because you know if you can kind of figure things out here, yeah. It, it gives you an edge in other places as well. So I can, it's, it's hopefully a two-way street, right? Like I'm garnering a lot of information uh, from you and your farm and your experience that I wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. Yes. Yeah, it, it, things like the Kernza, you definitely get to plumb the downside potential of crops and systems and things that you want to try by trialing them in horse oven. Well, thanks for providing such a great service here on your farm. <laughs> Happy to help. Um, so the rest of the region, you know, in the very dry, the very dry eastern Washington um, and this whole rain-fed grain region, I think, will benefit from from the exploration. Um, I don't think we did actually mention how much your average rainfall is up here. Uh, it's a good question. I think it falls around seven to nine inches is where they say. And of course, that's widely variable. And the timing counts for very much with that. Most of the reason that we're able to practice it successfully here is because it comes in the right window in the wheat growing season. And when it doesn't, it makes things a lot harder. Okay. What is your rainfall timing then a little bit more so precisely? Mo- most of it is fall through spring. So generally in the summer, we only have a few kind of almost abnormal rain events. And then the rains kind of pick up about this time of year in October. We Our wettest months are probably December and January, February, and then it tapers off through the spring. But that's the consistent time when the wheat's growing and we've got the right mild temperatures to where it all just kind of aligns. This is one of the warmer parts of the region, isn't it? Do you get most of your precip in rain or do you get some snow down here too? We do get some snow, but it's it's nothing like in the more northern parts of Washington. We 
get most of it as rain or even fog, but the snow that we get tends to be short-lived. It makes me nervous because we've got less residue, fragile soils. I don't like having large, long-lasting snowfall events because we also get Chinook weather patterns where it can melt so quickly that it runs off and causes damage on the way out and it's lost. So I, I prefer I prefer what our normal situation is, which is to get it as rain. You know, I just really feel like I need to comment that you know your dry land when you're counting fog as precipitation. Water harvesting. <laughs> um, well, thanks for that description. I know that really helps give, give some perf- perspective around the work that's being done here. Um, so what... Um, you guys mentioned the, the Kernza experiment. Is that the primary collaboration that you're working on, or do you guys have some other things you've been doing together? And just talk a little bit more about the, the suite of projects you have going on. I can speak to that a little bit, uh, Carol. I, I think it was the first project, the first thing I hauled in here to work on with, with Garrett Moon was uh, Kernza. Kernza is intermediate wheatgrass. It's a long-lived perennial that's being directly domesticated for grain production that is somewhat similar to wheat in its quality uh, characteristics. And it was interesting because I wanted, I wanted to kind of paint a picture of how this perennial grain could be, could be grown across our, our long-term research area. And it was just a natural fit. I was like, well, I can do it in the, the Palouse where I'm like pretty darn sure it's gonna work and work probably better than most anywhere in the country, but like, I also need to see what, let's test it, right? Let's trial it in an area that's really gonna, to, for lack of a better term, punish it, right? And see what it can do. Um, it's and, true. And that, and Sorry, this, this, this is I'm the ground. <laughs> this, this is the ground. <laughs> and so that was the first project, but since then we've, we have expanded the portfolio. Uh, we've done a few trials on a larger acreage, uh, also including things like remote and proximal sensing uh, to see how that will work and looking at weeds uh, emergence and incidence uh, in your in your fields as well as uh, some cover cropping trials cover cropping yes so one one of our biggest challenges and garrett and i have discussed it many times is just we are in a wheat fallow system because we're so dry and it's not the best system but it's the only one that works and many of the challenges that come associated with the fallow with chemical resistant weeds and with loss of moisture the fallow is not particularly efficient but it's just enough efficient that we can grow successful crops with it so i've been very focused on ways we can shorten or improve lessen the cost lessen the problems associated with the fallow period and that's where the cover cropping comes in so a cover crop is a big expense for us, but we've looked at ways, and Garrett's helped measure those ways of could we plant cover crops that maybe fix nitrogen? Could we plant cover crops that suppress herbicide resistant weeds that we're struggling with? Could we plant cover crops that we potentially take to harvest if the conditions are right? And just kind of looking at a holistic way to find to shorten the fallow. When you guys started the Kernza collaboration and then how, you know, these other projects that have spiraled off from that. So who who starts asking these questions in your collaboration? Or how do the questions, the research questions come up? Probably both of us, I would say. Yeah, I think to so. To a large degree. Yeah. And then conversations 
that we've had, you know, many conversations standing in the yard or at, at various times just kind of cooking up plans and back and forth on what he can do on the researching side and the questions I'm interested in and we come up with something through that. Can you guys maybe speak to what a few of the questions that have come out that you are trying to answer among this suite of different projects you have going on? Well, I, I think it, it's it's been interesting because as, as a, like an ARS researcher, my job is to assume a lot of the risk, right? It's like you don't want to try something on, you know, 500 acres. It's better to let me try it and then and then fail so that that's part that's my job as far as i can tell um fail forward i fail, think fail forward yeah. we're Very answering so. questions that's successful but oftentimes it's not it's not the silver bullet it's very difficult to get to get there and so as you know either i put trials in or gary puts trials in we can see those results real time or talk about the results after the, the data has come in in the winter and that naturally leads to progressively usually more research projects but also hopefully ones that are more dialed in to what will and will not work uh, in, in this particular region yeah very much so and I think fail forward is the perfect term for it because I I was mentally reviewing the projects we'd done together and a good deal of them were failures a good deal of the trials and things I've done on my own prior to working with Garrett were also failures but in every case I learned from those and you usually fail do a post-mortem on it and come up with the reason why or reasons why that it failed and each time you hone it in and you get better and eventually you come up with something that works from that. Those re research questions um, just keep getting refined it sounds like. Yeah very much so. Mm -hmm. So you've got Kernza, your weeds inventory and the remote and proximal sensing and the cover crops. Um, what data are you collecting on these and um, kind of in that as well, who's, who's doing the work? Um, what scale are these trials on? Let's hear more about these different projects, details. Part of the process, I think, too, is learning how we, like what, what is possible for us to, to do research on. And one of those is larger scale, like strip trial type research. You see these around long term at various farmers' fields, and uh, they oftentimes are very insightful. but. What I've learned is they're actually quite, tr quite tricky to figure out both what you want to try to answer and then logistically how, how to actually accomplish that. And so that's one thing that I think we're, we're, we're working, working towards. But as far as, and actually that, that stitches in with the data collection piece that you just asked, because how do you measure data on such a, a large geographical area, uh, like I said, a big strip trial, say. Um, Obviously, water is always a big question, right? How much does crop have to use? How much does it use? How much are you retaining during your fallow cycle? Those are all things. So to measure that, I use a little uh, TDR moisture sensor that is, accesses the top eight inches of soil and then little deeper neutron access tubes, which can allow me to measure water much deeper down to four or five feet in the profile. Uh, beyond that, as far as yield variables, uh, right now, up until now, I've been stuck with hand harvesting, or if in a large strip trial, Garrett could go in with his full-size combine and combine off um, those strips. But now I'm getting better equipped with smaller combines that should give us more flexibility and 
and being able to, to do a little more robust research as far as yield data. Yeah, and <clears throat> to piggyback off that, I, it's been very helpful working with him because he can look at data much more precisely than anything I've been able to do in on-farm on trials before. And a lot of times in farming, you just we would be operating with a seat of the pants feel, which when it's a slam dunk and something's much better, that's great. That tells you what you need to know and you can go with it. But there's a lot of stuff that we did that wasn't there. And so, I, you know, I might have felt that something was better, but I didn't have hard data to make decisions on. And Garrett can look into the details of when these things happen as well, which is important for us. So he can look at if we're trying to cover crop what the impact is on the, the cash crop that follows and also he'll know the water that was drawn out of the soil profile over the season so we could maybe look at times for termination and things like that and we can really zero in a lot more precisely and that's been very helpful. It sounds like that moisture data um, layer is, is probably one of the yes. most exciting. That's all we think about in Horse Evan is where the water is. So. I'm going to go ahead and say most of this rain-fed region. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did want to ask just from kind of the, with the science geek hat on, um, are you monitoring moisture continuously or is this like a single point sampling throughout the season? I have a weather station that I monitor moisture continuously in a fallow situation. So there's nothing that's planted immediately around my weather station. I have uh, moisture sensors that go down to about 75 centimeters or, I don't know, a couple, couple feet. Um, Using science yeah, units. Two and, a half, two and a half feet or something like that. Um, so that's continuously monitoring precip and moisture and temperature, things like wind speeds and directionality. Uh, other things, uh, logistically, it's not possible for me to put that many sensors in the ground. So I do time series measurements using a TDR little moisture sensor or a neutron meter uh, which allows me to go much deeper but still it's uh, like a repeated measures time series type okay. of data collection yeah, maybe so once every month or every twice a month or something right i'm just trying to get that picture so you're coming out here into the plots with your um, sensors you know every like you say once a month and, and taking those measurements exactly okay awesome well thanks for that um and are you doing it across the, the cover cropping and the Kernza both, or? Well, the, the, the most everything gets the sensor, the, the shallow sensor readings. That doesn't give us very much information, unfortunately. It's just not, eight inches of the soil profiles, is, it's not that important for a lot, of, a lot of the year. And so I'm working on putting more access tubes in faster. And so the Kernza had uh, quite a few access tubes. We Our strip trial project had some access tubes that went into deeper in the profile. Next year, um, I'll be putting more of those in the cover cropping, but it'll be very strategic. It's very time consuming. So, and also the machinery, the hydraulics that are required to press holes that deep, so I don't have to do it manually, is another, but this is all tooling up to get this research going. And it's, that's one thing I, I, I told Kara right away, is like, you have to be patient with me it's going to take me some time. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. So, he, and he has been, so, um, yeah. How long do you expect, especially the, so the, the Kernza trial, with that being a perennial grain, uh, how long that, are you guys planning for that to be in place? That's a good question. 
<laughs> you go ahead on the roost. I was going to see side. how you answered that one. Well, Garrett, maybe this will be the last one. Yeah. <laughs> as long as it takes to find out something useful, I think would be my answer. Absolutely. Uh, the plan is, is a minimum of three years. Uh, and new plots go in every single year. And they go in in the spring and they go in in the fall. Um, it would be good to extend that up to five years. And this is, so this is like a long-term investment, right? Like Garrett's got to put up with me, the researcher, and I got to keep coming out to the farm to, to conduct this research. Cause it's, it takes forever, right? It's a, it's a, a probably a three to five year project. Um, so that, that's just the reality of growing perennial crops though. We won't really know if it worked or not. Either way we can answer the question, but we won't know for a while yet. Yeah, because we we have to wait for them to develop. Everything happens slow because of the lack of moisture. They're very similar. The more I am around them, the more I think of them as being similar to the conservation reserve program grasses that we grow because they just they're very slow and weak out the gate, and they take a long time to develop. But then once they are developed, they seem to be fairly rugged. But again, I don't know if we'll get economically sufficient amounts of, of them to do anything. But th through this long-term process, I think there's some opportunities for learning elsewhere because Garrett's been able, we've both seen the effective seeding dates and seeding rates to some extent. And so we can dial that in and learn some more things. And I'm sure even if it doesn't work here, this is knowledge that he'll be able to use elsewhere with the Kearns of Project. And also when a plot doesn't work, when, the, when a piece of plot ground is right, there's always like opportunities to introduce new crops. So on plots that haven't, the treatments that haven't been working with the perennial grains, this year I seeded in some like winter peas. So we can see, you know, it may not be a full on study, but it's still like we can look at something and there's gonna be something growing there, which is also important. We're in a very highly erodible area. So it's it's always where when one door closes, something else usually opens up. Definitely. Nice. You know, this, this is a little bit different than some of the other on-farm trials episodes that we've done where in your own on-farm trials when you're working by yourself it's like this is a question i'm asking for my farm versus these questions that you guys are working to answer together these are more of a regional scope and viability question um, so i think that's again that's really cool and, and thanks for that and i'm interested in the configuration and how this looks as part of the moon family farm i mean did you just give them a little playground and say good luck or um have you been out there you know like on, on the tractor helping to seed some of these things or, or what does that logistically look like it, it's <clears throat> it's been some of both so the first trial that we did i seeded and it was a po trial that we did is a cover on the fallow ground and then in the meantime we got to the next season garrett had tooled up a little bit more he has an area that's on the back of the farm. We kind of found a place that was conveniently sited for the Kernza trials and stuff that could be in longer term where it wasn't in the way. And where the neighbors aren't seeing it. <laughs> that, that as well. Although the joke is you just want to put those right out where the neighbors can see them and just kind of air your dirty laundry. But, <laughs> but uh, he's got a spot that's his essentially that, he, put, that he, he can do his own research on. We do talk about what what he's doing back there but it's it, it's really all under his control he goes back takes care of all the stuff i'm as hands off with it during the season as i want to be and then we also have coordinated on some trials that we're doing elsewhere that are a little bit larger scale and so by my scale there's still plot work but they're large enough that they're too big for 
true research plot equipment. So those ones I'm seeding and spraying and tending and doing the other operations. Nice. So do you go out and look at the Kernza plots as part of your regular monitoring? <laughs> I, I don't look at the Kernza plots because things happen pretty slow, especially over the summer there. <laughs> I do see them when I'm working the fields and then occasionally we'll, we'll check. I, I walk back there and check them, but it's not a regular thing. I have enough to take care of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I figure, but you got you got to ask. See how see how curious you are in your scouting and monitoring. You want to add more too about some of the, the data, the design, the logistics, the research questions. I guess uh, one thing that I think we'll be working on more more of. I had said previously about just trying to figure out how to how to. Uh, conduct the research and what it what that means right we in order to we've got we've got one large field that we're monitoring downy Burlman. it's about what's 160 acres 130 130 acres um it's it's a large piece of ground and if you're trying to find where the weed downy brome is and try to monitor that we'd like to be able to use it or monitor it using say a drone well, what does that take? I'm I'm not an expert in drone. I don't think Garrett, you're no. uh, neither of us are. We're both useless with that. So I go out and I find a collaborator who specializes in remote sensing, and he teaches me how to do the proximal sensing. And we're just now, after a year of that, getting in data to say, okay, we can fly a drone, and or you know have someone fly a drone out there, and we can start to map out where downy brome populations are. And that leads again to just a future study. And then what is the relevance of, that's a fairly hot topic, what's the relevance of um, remote sensing in agriculture for weed mapping? And where yes. does Garrett want to go out and run his uh, weed it sprayer, for example? What would be the best place for that? Or to do a broadcast, a broad acre application. Um, so I, I think a lot of stuff takes so much time and just repeated attempts to try to get, to get data acquired that is meaningful for the farmer, and then also is I can make sense of as a researcher. It's it's quite a, it's quite the dance. It is, and and on the initial setups, it's quite the dance too. I I would add, Garrett and I had a lot of back and forth on that because when I'm offering a field that I know has a known downy brome issue that I am trying to deal with and hoping that I can get some assistance, financial, technical, and otherwise from him to put a product down that will help with that downy brome then he as a researcher wants to do control plots. And I as a farmer don't want any weeds left. So <laughs> there's always that mm, back and attention. forth on, on where and how we do that. Well, I, just to see what we did is I, I, I followed Garrett on the four-wheeler and I just waved at him hoping that he would turn off part of his boom. And then, I don't know, we'll, we'll, sometimes he'd turn off the boom and sometimes he wouldn't. I'm just kidding, <laughs> no, it worked out really well. So yeah, it was, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to, to find a, a middle ground there. Yeah, definitely. Um, we talked about this a little bit. I know um, kind of the, the yield and return on investment questions tend to be pretty important on a working farm. Um, and you had mentioned your interest in the moisture. Like how, how are you each thinking more about the data? Dr. Hynek, as, as a scientist, a lot of your job security depends on publishing papers. Um, and um, Garrett Moon, I know as a farmer, like you just you, you need to not go broke. Well, yeah, and just like how you're each thinking about the data and and how that affects your decision making going forward as as these projects continue to evolve. 
I, I think from my perspective as a grower, it, it allows me to be much more precise in analyzing things and to look at, at multiple factors that I wouldn't otherwise be able to because the fa getting back to the fallow and the cover croppings, that's, that's a very tricky one because the only thing that I can really measure is what the impact is on a cash crop to follow. And the only way that I could really measure that in the past would be something like just looking at yield. And that's one data point, but I can't measure the potential positives. Did we plant a cover crop that maybe had, that fixed some nitrogen or did some other things? And with the tools that he has, he can look at all those things and then we can put some numbers associated with those that give us a full picture of what occurred and what the potential economics of that would be. And I think that ability to find more precise numbers is very valuable for me and the questions that we approach and ask. One of the things that has come up about other episodes of this podcast is in addition to the numbers, which are very important in the economics, it's, you know, not just what's going out, but what's going in and the effects on the soil and the time spent. And so I guess, could you speak a little bit just um, on, on your farm, how that looks for you? Uh, it's, that's where, that's another aspect of cover crops where things get tricky is just because we're so dry, the economics dictate that we have to have larger farms and cover a lot of acres because there's just going to be less return per acre. It's just the way it is. And therefore, all of our budgets are smaller per acre. We have to do more with less. And it's important that we have a tight grasp on all these economics. And that's why these these questions, that's, that's why things like the cover crop that in the past we would just write off because the economics weren't there on the on the cash crop yield it's good to have other ways to look at them and see if we're gaining in, in other areas I appreciate that perspective thanks for sharing that um, Dr. Hynek would you want to talk a little bit about what data means to you uh, sure um, so as you mentioned as an ARS researcher I have to publish a very specific quota of peer-reviewed academic publications every year. I'm, I like to do that, so that's good. Um, so data means that I, I, can, I can accomplish that task so I can keep my job. You should keep your <laughs> job. You're doing a lot of other great things in addition to publishing papers, so you should do that so you can keep doing all the other wonderful things that you do. Thank you, Carol. And I, I will say too, though, we were talking about three to five years with the Kernza, um, the strip trials, lar larger trials, they take taking years just to figure out how to do them. So even if we did have a short season crop, like a, let's say like we tried, we tried like teff, food grade teff. We've, I have millet out there, sorghum, all sorts of stuff. Those are short season crops that we can trial, but it's still a matter of logistics, coordination and execution of that plan along with the data that would lead to right, the, my personal ROI. However, I really see like what we're doing right now in this podcast, what Garrett and I were doing over in his shop talking. Those are also, those experiences are also part of the research. And there's no one who can tell me that that itself is not data that can be harnessed as a useful body of knowledge to advance our scientific work. 
And so even though things may take three, five, ten years, the process of getting there itself, I think, is an ROI as far as data collection goes. And so, um, yeah, I, I guess data is important, but also data that you might not think is data in a conventional uh, agronomic sense is also very important uh, to me as well. Actually, I was just at a, um, attending a conference, and one of the things they highlighted was this idea of pluralistic ways of knowing. You know, I was just on another interview we just did, it was like, when you walk into a no-till field, you can, that's been in no-till for a few in-crop seasons, um, you can be blindfolded and tell the difference. Right, and that's that's different than the data that you can statistically analyze, and you know, and uh, you know, after generations on this farm, this farm is part of your DNA. Like you know things that you can't graph. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very true. I I was thinking of when I first came back to the farm. My background was in mechanical engineering, and you know, it's a numbers based profession, and I kind of wanted to use that much more than I do now in the way that I approached farming. And my dad is very opposite. My father farmed his whole life, was successful at it. That was right here in Horse Oven where it's not easy to do. And I, f I would ask him these questions to try to get information that I could use to make decisions. And it frustrated me a little bit at first because he could never really give hard answers. But what I finally came to the conclusion of is my father had very much just internalized the feelings of all these things into something that was very amorphous but he could just walk outside and like he said about the no-till field he could walk outside stand in the sun close his eyes and just feel what the weather was like and tell you that it was time to go to work and start fall seeding and he would be correct <laughs> and it takes it it takes a lot of years of experience to get there of course but also data is useful but there are so so many variables and the unbelievable complexities of these living systems and how everything intertwines and the mechanical part of farming and the way the iron affects the soil and all these things and that's that's where the true value of the the experience and the knowledge on the ground comes from as someone that can bring that in and offer these tips and solutions and and suggestions to to the research. I mean, the two interplay with each other very much. Thank you for sharing all of that perspective. And, you know, um, Garrett, as uh, not as good of a scientist as you, but still with some scientific oh, training. Please. Please. <laughs> with still with some scientific training under, under my belt, I do understand, you know, that the role of data and especially statistics in an applied ag context in particular um, can really inform that risk reduction. Like, oh look, we have found this thing is more likely to occur when you do this thing under these conditions. And you know, um, we can say that from a standpoint of it is more than just random chance that this effect occurred. Um, and so would you maybe speak a little bit more to that? And then you mentioned the long-term agroecosystem research network. Um, which will be, you know, hereby referred to as LTAR, um, <laughs> and how, you know, as, um, as a collaborator working, um, wor working with you in that space with the Cook Agronomy Farm site, um, 
how is that long-term research important and how does this on-farm experimentation complement the research farm work that's done on the Cook Agronomy Farm in Pullman and how those experiments contribute to answering these broader cropping systems innovation question across the region. And again, you got to remember to thread statistics and their relevance throughout all of that. Oh, that's, that's a big question. I'm going to thread <laughs> <laughs> like a needle, Carol. <laughs> like a this. needle. Yep. Um, so I guess, first of all, I'd like, I'd like to put it on record that the reason why scientists use statistics is just to reduce the number of arguments that we have. <laughs> Right, it's, it, it sets like a limit, like a threshold, right? Like, um, now, it didn't meet the threshold. We don't have to talk about that anymore. Is it, is it 0.05 or 0.1, Garrett? That, therein lies another argument. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm usually a 0.05 guy, but it's, uh, it can, there's a wiggle room. Including in the room. field or just there's in the lab? Oh boy, here we go, here we go. We hope you enjoyed part one of our two-part interview. Stay tuned for part two releasing in two weeks. As always, a big thank you to our guests today for sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us. This podcast is produced by the PNW Farmers Network team with music credit to Carlos Flores. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, happy trials.